Hey, Venture, it's great to see you here today. Some of you are physically in the space. I love seeing your smiling faces today. Some of you are joining us online, and I'm grateful that you're with us as well. Regardless if you're online or you're in the room, I want to invite you to participate. Take seriously the call to action that Jake just asked. Would you grab that piece of paper that he mentioned, pull it out right now, have it sitting on your lap, grab a pen, they're in the seat backs in front of you, if you're joining us online, I want you to participate. This is how I want you to participate. Please email me the same thing. I'm going to explain to everybody here in just a second. You can email it to me at stan at venturechristian.church. Stan at christianventure.church. And I'll have action steps for that as well. But those of you who are in the room, I really want you to take this seriously. We're talking today about prayer. Here at Venture, if you're a guest today, I'm so glad, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. We love having guests join us at Venture, but you should know that we're not just a church that believes in the power of prayer. We do. We do. But we want to be a praying church. We're going to put that into action this week. So, if you could ask one request of God, I know you're thinking about it. If you could ask one request of God, what would it be? What is your heart's cry, your heart's desire today? And I want you, whenever the Holy Spirit shoulder taps you over the next 30 minutes, I want you to write that down. Now, what Jake said is very real and true. Uh, if you want to keep it anonymous, you don't have to. You can sign your name if you want people to know about this. But we're going to exchange these a little bit later in the service. So you might keep it anonymous if your prayer request is anonymous. But be honest. Write it down. When you're ready, go ahead and grab the pen, write it down, and I'll give you further instructions here in a little bit. Welcome to week two of our rebuilding series. That's what we're about for this seven-week series. And uh, I, I've spent a fair amount of time over the last week or two as I've been thinking about this particular sermon remembering a season of my life. I bet you have seasons like this that you think of. But uh, when I think about rebuilding and when I think about the topic that we're talking about today, I can't help but think about the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. Three things happened that particular summer that were pivotal in my young life. One of them, well, you heard Jake just talk about right uh, just a few minutes ago about CIY, Christ in Youth Conference. That was the first time I ever went to a CIY conference, the summer between my freshman and sophomore years of high school. That was kind of in that season when, as a young man, I was turning the corner between childhood and young adulthood, and I was starting to make my faith, well, my parents' faith up until that point, my own. That was a pivotal conference, a pivotal week to think through, hey, I really believe in this Jesus character, and I want to give my life wholeheartedly to him and follow him in everything I do. That was a big thing that summer. The other thing, I told you over three, the beginning of the summer, my, my mom's cancer came back. And when it came back, it came back with a vengeance. And um, that was a big deal. She had had cancer when I was a fifth grader and a sixth grader. She had a double mastectomy and chemotherapy and radiation. And when it came back, it was kind of all through her body. And that, that was a big summer because she got news that summer. I'll never forget the day she got the phone call. Because of that, the third thing that was pivotal that summer is that I got kind of farmed out. I'm the oldest of four kids, and because mom doubled down on some experimental therapies and she was doing radiation and chemotherapy, all four of us kids went and spent time with family members, 
And uh, I spent about half of my summer with my aunt and uncle that are farmers. Uh, but then I spent, well, probably more than half of the summer with an aunt and uncle. My uncle is a general contractor. And that summer, I learned some building trades. Some of you are looking at this going, why is there A, B, C, D? It's because I only spent a summer with him. So for me to lay a foundation, I kind of need a step-by-step process. I need somebody walking me through it. That's not really why it's labeled like that. I'm not going to tell you why it's labeled like that. Rather, we're going to explore that together here in just a few minutes. But today, we're looking at building, rebuilding. There are some axioms around building that pop up from time to time. I bet you even said the first one at some point. Rome wasn't built in a day. This idea that building oftentimes takes time. True statement. Here's one by Winston Churchill. I love this one. It says, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Absolutely true. You build a house, the way you build the kitchen and the living room interacts with the way you live in that space. Here's another one by Benjamin Franklin in the spirit of poor Richard's almanac. I love this. He says, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. If you want to skimp on the building, well, you might end up paying for it later. How about this one? It's not the beauty of the building you should look at. It's the construction of the foundation that will stand the test of time. Ah, we get it what we're going to be talking about today. Here's the last one. You can't build a great building on a weak foundation. You must have a solid foundation if you're going to have a strong superstructure. This is what we're talking about today. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it, pull it out. Be bringing your Bibles each week during this series. This is a book study through the book of Nehemiah. Today, We're in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. There's a Bible in that seat back in front of you if you want to grab that and pull it out. I'm on page 476 of that Bible. Again, 476, those Bibles that are underneath the seat in front of you. The title of today's message is A Broken Spirit because we see that on display in the first chapter of Nehemiah. And today, I've already told you, we're going to pray for each other. We've got a lot to pray for, friends. Please be praying for your church. We've got big stuff on the horizon this year. This past week was one of those weeks where we did some work toward the end. I can't wait to see what God does in us and through us this next year. Today is all about the idea of foundations. What are we building on? As we study through the book of Nehemiah, the foundations, they had been rocked. The foundations had been rocked. Can you relate to that? I bet you can. It's been, it's been a weird two-year season, hasn't it not? Uh, we did dinner this past week with some old friends that we hadn't seen for a while. Don and I met them here at the church. They brought their son. He played in flashlight tag on Friday night. They had this cool event happening down there. There's another one for the older kids this next Friday night. Moms and dads don't miss out on that. It was all kinds of fun. While their kid was running around having a blast, we went across the street, the four of us, to uh, the Mexican restaurant. And we sat down there and we talked. And it was so interesting how we, as we're catching up, she's a nurse. He travels for his business. We kind of talked about where were you when this particular COVID announcement came out? What was going on in your life for that first week or two of the pandemic and the lockdown? And then what's been going on since? It was so interesting to think about. I walked out just thinking, man, this has been a weird season. It's shaping our conversations. It probably will be shaping conversations for a long time. Nehemiah, 
This is a timeless study because there's always more work to be done. I told you this last week. During its long history, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice. It's been besieged 23 times. It's been attacked 52 times, and it's been captured and recaptured, get this, 44 times. We don't have any pictures of the destruction of the temple during Nehemiah's time. I did show you some pictures last week of the walls that he was a part of rebuilding. But would you like to see some pictures of destruction of the temple? I hope so, because I'm going to show you anyway. Here is some picture. I actually took this photograph. This is uh, the edge of the western wall. That side would be described as the Wailing Wall. This is the excavation that would be like uh, uh, the southwest corner of the temple. This rubble that you're looking at right here, they're a lot bigger than you think they are. These are stairs back here. These are giant rocks. I'm talking like tons, each one of them. AD 70. The second temple, when it was destroyed, Titus, this Roman uh, legionnaire leader, he was uh, uh, like a general of the Roman army. He came in and they sacked Jerusalem and absolutely destroyed it, including the temple. And they pushed these giant rocks over. Let me show you this next picture. You can see there the divots. And this was the Roman cardo. This was a street that ran right next to the temple. And these rocks that were pushed from way up here down and over, they destroyed the street. And that rubble still sits there today because the temple has yet to be rebuilt. The temple had been destroyed 400 years plus before that temple. And the rebuilding of that temple became Ezra's life work. But the walls and the gates, the rebuilding of that around Jerusalem, that that became Nehemiah's life work. And the the book of Nehemiah opens with a description of the tragic events that had happened in Jerusalem. The people were in trouble. A hundred years had passed, and the walls of Jerusalem had not been rebuilt, and there were no secure gates to the city. The walls had been broken down by the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. And the people of Judah were in exile in Babylon for, get this, 70 years Two groups of people had returned from captivity to Jerusalem. There's no historical evidence, though, that the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt before Nehemiah arrived. Word had gotten to Nehemiah. We looked at this last week. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things... This is Nehemiah in his first-person voice. He's saying, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. And then, then I said. The opening verses of Nehemiah sound like a refrain that we could read from Psalm 137. Listen to this psalm. This is probably written, a lot of people think, during that era of the Babylonian exile. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. Does that sound familiar to what Nehemiah was saying? When we remembered Zion, Zion is just a name, kind of a pet name for Jerusalem. Zion, the city of God, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there are captors... We weren't willingly there. These people captured us and held us hostage. Our captors demanded of us songs. They wanted us to paint on this smiley face, act like everything is okay. And our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Do you sing a song like that today? 
Are your eyes focused on a great need and a great challenge? And maybe you feel utterly insufficient for the cause. Perhaps your own personal wall and your outer gates need to be repaired. I want to talk to you the truth about walls. In Nehemiah's day, there were spiritual walls in Jerusalem that had to be broken down, such as idolatry, arrogant pride, and a secularism that said, we don't need God We don't want him to interfere in our personal affairs. But God's indictment was very clear, and he didn't stutter. The people of Judah stiffened their necks, and they hardened their hearts against the Lord God. Look at this passage where it's recorded in 2 Chronicles. It says this, Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful. This is describing the climate, the spiritual climate of this day. Following all the admin... That's easy for me to say, the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of the Lord, the very temple itself, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. These are the prophets that kept coming and saying, you need to turn back to God. You need to do what he's called you to do all along. They despised his words and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against the people until there was no remedy. God finally said enough and he brought the Babylonians to power and he took the people of Judah into captivity for 70 years. When God was through with Babylon, he picked up another hammer and he used the Medo-Persians to deliver his people from captivity. Let me make this statement. Old walls have to come down before new ones can be built. Old walls need to be torn down before the new ones can be built back even better. God had to tear down some old spiritual walls before he could build new ones in Jerusalem. God used the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar to destroy and to remove the sinfulness and the idolatry of his rebellious people. The old walls had to be broken down, and as we just read, their gates were burned with fire. Nehemiah clearly defined the problem. He saw the people of Jerusalem under great distress. It was a miserable situation. They were suffering from misery. Could I even say calamity? With the walls torn down, they were in a vulnerable position. Let me ask you this question. What are some of the old walls that God needs to destroy in your life? Think about that. Maybe, maybe just maybe there's a prayer request to be found somewhere in the answer to that question. If there is, if the Holy Spirit is whispering something in your ear right now, write it down. We want to pray about that. I would challenge you to survey the walls around you in your personal life, your home, your marriage, your work, even your pleasures, maybe your guilty pleasures. Maybe get alone with God this week and take a hard look at some of the old walls that are keeping you from being all that God wants you to be. Maybe your old wall has become overgrown with briars of sinful habits, and there's some entanglements there, maybe even of sinful relationships. Maybe your wall is filled with sinful habits, and you now find it difficult, or maybe you find them impossible. It feels impossible to break those habits. Your wall, maybe we're talking about sexual practices that the Bible clearly forbids. You know they're wrong, you know they're out of control, maybe pornography, maybe there's addiction there. If your old wall is filled maybe with a critical attitude and a bitter tongue, is that possible? Do you whine and do you complain about everything? 
Has your, fight, has your fault finding become compulsive and maybe even habit forming? Maybe the walls of your city have been broken down. Perhaps the gates to your city need to be repaired. You were burned, and now nobody can get inside anymore. Perhaps there's a bitterness to your experience. Maybe you felt some betrayal or some emotional abuse that have caused your gates to crumble. If that's you today, I wonder if there's a prayer request in there somewhere. God will never use us to our full potential unless we see the true condition of our walls and our burned-down gates to our city. May the Holy Spirit even right now illuminate the true condition of our church, of our lives, our community, and our world. We have to weep over the walls before we can rebuild them God's way. There's a new spiritual wall that needs to be rebuilt around the city, the city even of your soul. So face the truth about your old walls. Nehemiah, we just read it, he wept, he mourned, he fasted, he prayed over the conditions of Jerusalem. He became personally involved in seeking the problem. He was a compassionate leader who spent time seeking the mind of God. This is where God's people must begin. So what's the condition of your spiritual wall? Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Have you recognized the poverty of your spirit? There's some brokenness that's going on there. How is your relationship right now with Jesus Christ? One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, describes what happens when we neglect the walls of our lives. He said this, Let the owner neglect for a while his prized and valued acres, and they will revert again to the wilds and be swallowed by the jungle or the wasteland. The bias of nature is toward the wilderness, never toward the fruitful field. Here's a book by Chuck Swindoll. It's called Hand Me Another Brick. He says this about this, this idea. What the walls were to Jerusalem, our lives are, before God. The walls of our lives often lie in ruins through neglect. The leader who brings us to rebuild the walls is the Holy Spirit, and it is he who continues the work of reconstruction even inside of us. He goes on to say he tries his best to bring to our attention the condition of our walls, but sometimes we don't hear what he's saying, yet we're not hard of hearing. We simply don't listen. Or maybe, maybe we just don't want to listen. By the way, did you take seriously the call to action last week to read the book of Nehemiah this past week? If you haven't, please do that on your own, in your own quiet time. If you're looking for a companion piece to read along with this study, this is going to be a seven-week series, could I recommend that book? It's called Hand Me Another Book or Brick. Hand Me Another Brick. It's by Chuck Swindoll, Charles Swindoll. That's a great read and would be a great companion piece to this study we're in right now. Let me encourage you to mourn over your own walls. Nehemiah, we're getting ready to read here in a moment. Nehemiah prayed with a humble attitude. And he prayed with a broken heart. Nehemiah mourned over the loss of his walls. The text says, we just read it, he sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. God always welcomes a broken spirit and he welcomes a contrite heart. And this picture, by the way, is of intense emotion. It is expressed in weeping and fasting and prayer. And get this, this prayer lasted for an extended period of time, several months. 
probably four months, three to five months. Let me prove it to you. If you've got your Bible, open it up and look in the first couple of verses. You'll notice that there is a month that's mentioned there. The beginning of this story takes place during the month of Kislev. This is uh, like November, December time frame. And then Nehemiah waited until the, months, uh, the month of Nisan. If you go to the beginning of the second chapter, you see that Nisan is mentioned there. I think it's the Nisan Ultima. That's not funny. That's not even funny at all. But this period of time is about, it's like three to five months it takes place there. So this prayer that we're getting ready to study, it goes for a long time. He's in a season of prayer. Like we read it, we're getting ready to read it, and it looks like, well, this is a one-and-done prayer, like a 20-minute long thing. Uh Uh-uh. This is months long. He's in a season of prayer. He's fasting. He's confessing the sins, not just of himself, but for his nation. He's confessing the sins of the people that he's a part of. What's your reaction to the walls where you live? Can I challenge you? Get on your knees in brokenness and mourn with a broken heart at what you see. Nehemiah didn't start working, actually, until after his weeping. I mean, we in our Taipei culture, we're so tempted to, oh my goodness, well, there's a problem. Let's solve it. Let's put on the gloves. Let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get busy. Let's go to work. Let's do something, right? Well, Nehemiah didn't start working until after his weeping. And I might suggest to you, neither should we. Nehemiah could only work after he cast himself in utter dependence upon the Lord God. We work in vain if we're not in total dependence on him. A guy named Cecil Barber wrote this, The self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. Contrast that with the self-righteous, they cannot pray. They have no basis on which to approach God. And I heard a wise person say one time that there is uh, one kind of person for whom God can do nothing. It's the person who's absolutely satisfied with what he is at this moment in the sight of God. He says, I'm already good. I've got no room for improvement. I've got nothing for God to do in my life. This is the person that God can't do anything with. So let's get to building. That's what this series is all about, right? But wait, the foundations need to be laid first. Could I submit to you, according to the first chapter of Nehemiah, that prayer was the foundation to Nehemiah's wall. Prayer was the foundation. For us, the same is true today. Prayer is the foundation. We wrote up some of our core values. We did some work this past year, actually the last couple of years, and I shared this with you in the sermon series this past year that our core values here at Venture are biblical authority, a continued spiritual growth approach, outward-focused impact, genuine hospitality, and this one right here, a prayerful dependence upon God. We want to be people of prayer. God has called us. This is one of our values. These are hills we'll die on. This is who we are. So before we read the prayer, before we walk out with some action steps on prayer, maybe we should pause and pray. Would you do that right now? Take whatever prayer posture you're comfortable or familiar with, and let's approach the creator God of the universe. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we bow our heads and we we close our eyes. 
And God, we confess we're insufficient. We confess when we look at our sin, when we look at our lives, when we look at our broken down walls, our burned gates, we confess that we need you. We desperately need you, God. Lord, some of us are feeling that in a powerful way, even right today. Lord, I know that some of us walked into this space and we feel like we're carrying a heavy load that we have to carry alone. So God, we confess that we need your help. We need you. We love you. We worship you. So now as we study Nehemiah's prayer, convict us, challenge us, move us to action inside of your will. And it's in your name, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This prayer we're reading is the first of many prayers in the book of Nehemiah. There's a whole bunch of prayers that we find of his that are recorded here in this book. I want to focus on five important emphases that should be a part of our prayers. You're probably looking at the A, B, C, D. It's been driving some of you crazy since I put that, that down. This is going to make sense here in just a minute. Some of you prayer warriors, maybe you follow a model of prayer. It's known as the ACTS model of prayer. How many of you are familiar with the Acts model of prayer? I see a whole bunch. This is one of my prayer strategies. This is a mnemonic device that I use when I sit down to pray. Acts stands for adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and then a fancy word because we had to make it fit the S, right? Supplication, which just means I'm bringing my requests before God. That that's not a bad model for how to pray. Start with adoration, adoring God, confessing my sins, saying thanksgiving for who he is and what he's doing in my life, and then finally saying, God, this is what I'm really here to ask for. These are my requests, and to be bold and to share those. Well, Nehemiah shares a slightly different mnemonic device. According to Nehemiah, prayer is simple as A, B, C's, D, and e. So the outline of the prayer we're going to read right now, I would suggest to you there is a word, an A, a B, a C, a D. If you're taking notes, write these down because I think this can inform how we pray even this week. The ABCs of prayer. The first one, the A, stands for adoration. We see this in the text. What did Nehemiah say in this moment of worship? Well, let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5. Then I said... After a season of mourning, of prayer, of grief over the condition of my world, the condition of my own heart, the condition of the people around me, their hearts, then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He spends some time right at the beginning of his prayer simply adoring God. He clearly recognizes that God has authority over all things. Nothing is too great for God. He saw the world through his eyes, and yet he knew of a greater God ruling over everything he saw. We don't use words today like sovereign to describe God's power, perhaps because we live inside of a democracy and rulership and authority is spread between people. But Nehemiah could see that the emperor over the known world of the time, who he was cupbearer serving, his name was King Artaxerxes, he saw that this guy basically got what he got. What he wanted, he got. But he knew deep down that there was one far greater than King Artaxerxes. How about you? Can you demand something from God because of your righteous behavior? 
more often we're a bunch of spiritual sissies, but do we begin our prayer time by saying, God, this is who you are. This is who I see you as. And you're so much more than who I am. God, we need you. The B. The B stands for brokenness. Nehemiah approaches God after adoring him. He comes to him with brokenness of his own heart. He had a right heart. He states that he has a need for God to help. And he recognizes that presumption is pride on his behalf. This is a great need for help. Nehemiah was broken. Let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6. The first part says, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. God, I come before you with brokenness. I come before you because I recognize I desperately need you, this people of Israel that you've called me to serve. Nehemiah is not presuming God to answer his prayer because he's so great or because his, regress, his requests are so noble. A broken heart is a non-demanding heart. We're not focused on what we want, but on what God wants. Have you been demanding things from God? Have you been prideful in your heart because you think you know better? We'd better confess our pride. We come with adoration, A. We come with brokenness, B. We come then with confession. The C stands for confession. And we see this modeled here in the prayer. This is right confession that's supposed to break through because sin needs confession. This is saying out loud, God, this is what I'm wrestling with. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. Let's keep reading uh, the last part of verse 6. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself, I'm complicit, and my father's house, my father was complicit. We're sinful people, God. We've committed these sins against who? Against you, our God. He claims it. He confesses it. He owns it. We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed the commands. God, you didn't make these as suggestions, but you said, this is what I need you to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. And we've broken that. We've sinned against you, decrees and laws that you gave your servant Moses. This has been a part of the fabric of the way we're supposed to live our lives for a very long time, God. And we confess we've not been doing it. He confesses his sins. By the way, there's a corporate sense of sin here that I wonder sometime in our communal living, in our individual approach to faith, I wonder if we miss this sometimes. Do me a favor right now. You're writing this piece of paper. I hope you're writing something down there. Please, if you haven't done it yet, I need you to do this. Write down your prayer before God. You're writing that on this side where it says rebuilding. This is a personal prayer. If you haven't yet done that, go ahead and do it. You're going to have an action step with that here in just a moment. And then flip it over. And on the back side, do me a favor. Practice what the ancient Israelites did. Confess sin, not just your sin, but communal sin. There's this thing that happens in the nation of Israel in their communal calendar, the Day of Atonement. They had this thing called the scapegoat. It went out into the desert. And it carried the sins of the people, not just the individual people, but it actually carried the sins of the whole people, the community. 
literally out into the desert, away from them. They'd push the sin out there. It was a sign of forgiveness that God's taken that sin away from them. But it was communal sin. So on the backside of this, maybe just write a confession. God, I confess. The church. Maybe think the church in America. We are guilty of this. Confess pride. Confess arrogance. Confess whatever it is that you, as you look around, you see, we are guilty of this. And God, we confess this and we share this with you, our God, right now. We confess it. We give it over to you. Write a confession maybe on behalf of the American church. Go ahead and do that. Take some time right now and write it right now. We got the ABCs of prayer. While you're doing that, let's go ahead and hit the next slide. We've got A, adoration, B, brokenness, C, confession. The D is all about dependence. This is right dependence on God's word to do what he said he'd do, to do what he called us to do. Here's what it says in verse 8. This is the rest of his prayer as he's sharing his dependence on God. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. He's suggesting that, God, this was all about you. It's still all about you. God, we have a dependence upon you. You've done the redeeming. It's your strength. It's your mighty hand. By the way, there's three essential components to fulfill the requirements that he's calling them to. Number one is this, that God's people are called to return to him. Literally to repent. Stop going this direction and start going this direction. Maybe that informs the prayer that you're writing on the back side of that card right now. If you look around, you see the church, the American church. Maybe we're walking this way, but God has said to go this way. Well, repent of that. This is the wrong direction to be going. Number two is to keep his commands. This is kind of interesting language here, this idea of keeping his commands. This is to like keep them in your heart and to know that these are things that are important to God. But then you'll notice there's a third action step. It's literally not just to know about his commandments, but to do them to do what he's called us to do. Here's the application. Are you living dependent on God? And then last, but definitely not least, there's an E, and I had to get a little fancy with this. We've got adoration, we've got brokenness, we've got confession, we've got dependence. The fancy word is entreaty. I had to come up with an E to fit this. But I like this word. I looked up the definition. Check this out. Entreaty, this is to plea. This is to appeal. It's a request. It's a petition. It's a cry from the heart. I like the way the the dictionary defines it here. It's an earnest or humble request. At some point in time, after adoring and after your brokenness, after confessing, after recognizing your dependence upon God, you need to ask him. Ask him your heart's desire. Entreaty. An earnest and a humble request. You need to make your requests specific. Prayer changes things. Notice how Nehemiah finishes his prayer. The very end of this prayer is the line, I was cupbearer to the king. The last part of verse 11, he says, I was cupbearer to the king. His identity has just changed. 
Notice, he doesn't have permission yet. In chapter 2, we're going to talk about this next week, he, he goes in and he asks permission to go and do what God has called him to do. But I would suggest to you that in this language, we see that he's, he's felt that his identity has already shifted. He's set his mind to, to rebuilding. The, uh, later in this series, we're going to use the word Revival. We're going to talk about the revival we see during Nehemiah's day. Have you ever studied the revivals in American history? I stayed up late last night, later than I typically do on a Saturday night, reading about the revivals that have happened. Oh, my goodness, maybe you've heard about these, the Great Awakening or the Second Great Awakening, the Businessmen's Revival of uh, the mid-1800s. You've got a revival that happened right after the Civil War. There were urban revivals. People like Dwight L. Moody were leading those. You've got the Azusa Street Revival. You've got a revival and a great awakening that followed the post-World War II era. There's the Jesus Movement maybe of the 60s. Some people would suggest that the Promise Keepers Movement in the 90s that fits the criteria for revival. Two basic ingredients that go into revival. Spiritual hunger would be the first. Oftentimes, this follows a disaster or a feeling of spiritual neediness. I don't know about you, but we've just lived through an era. Revivals emerge during times of spiritual and moral decline, which leads to the second ingredient, intense prayer. All revivals, I don't know if you have that desire. I would love to see God do something in our culture, do something through our church, do something in our hearts, turn our people back to God. All revivals start in the battle position. They start on our knees. Would you join me before we go into the work of rebuilding? We're going to be doing that next week. Let's build a solid foundation this week. Would you stand up with me right now? We're going to sing. We're going to spend some time adoring God. While we do that, would you be moved to action? Would you finish writing down your prayer, that thing that God has placed on your heart? And then I want you to carry that card. And you're going to pin it up on the walls over here. There are pins over on those black tables. They're over here on this side as well. And just take that as an act of worship as you're sing- during the song as you're singing to God. And to carry it over, literally to pin it up on the wall. I'm going to challenge everybody to do that. Put your prayer. Go ahead and jot it down right now. Pin it up while we sing. Let's do that right now.